Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are in the world. This is a, another episode of Two Developers Down Under. My name is Mark Mandel. As always, I am very lucky to have my partner in crime, Mr. Kai Koenig, here with me today. How are we doing, Kai? We are doing fine, actually. How are you, Mark? I'm barely awake at 6.15 in the morning and I got up at quarter to six and I'm a little bit surly today, but other than that, I think I'll be doing all right. Did you have a coffee today or did you just jump out of bed right to the microphone? I jumped out of bed pretty much straight right to the microphone. Um, I'm not much of a coffee drinker um, okay. and I, I tend to avoid caffeine where I can. So, cool. One of, the, one of, one of the few areas in which I'm health conscious. <laughs> So, why did we get up that early this morning? This morning? We're yep. doing a very special uh, group podcast this morning. Really? On, a group I, podcast? <laughs> yeah, well, that, you would that, know. You put it together. <laughs> that would involve that other people join us for this recording, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Um, so, we're doing a podcast today about agile and test-driven development, and we've got a stellar lineup today, I must say. That very true, excited actually. to have all these people on board. Um who apparently are ghosts in the background whispering secret things to people. <laughs> Interesting. So should we maybe quickly introduce who's here and then we do our you know usual stuff that we do every podcast and then we get into the topic? Sounds great. Would you like to do that, Kai? Yeah, let's just do a quick round and then we give the guys a chance to introduce themselves a little bit more detailed in a few minutes. So we've got here um, Sandy Mamoli, who's an Agile coach from Wellington, um, New Zealand, and she recently presented um, at WebDU. Then we've got uh, Mark Escher and Billy Shelton, who are basically the minds behind MX Unit, which is probably one of the or the most common test-driven development framework for ColdFusion. And we've got Michael Labriola, who is the mastermind behind Flex Unit, which is probably the most used TDD framework for Flex development. Sounds I think good. that de describes it quite well. Hi guys, thanks a lot for coming and joining us for this recording. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. Right. Great thanks for having us. <laughs> so, um, Mark, let's just do the quick stuff at the beginning of each podcast. The thing of the day. The thing of the day. My thing of the day is, and I know you have no you have no sympathy and like <laughs> for that. My thing of the day is actually the birthday of Russell T. Davis. And Sandy and asked I, me before, like, who the hell is that? And he's basically <laughs> the main writer behind um, Doctor Who, which is the most awesome TV show ever. Fair enough. I'm now, which... <laughs> Which season of Doctor Who? Because there are like 30. Oh, he, yeah. He's the, the main writer behind the recent stuff since basically um, Doctor Who came back in 2004, 2005. Yeah, see, I grew up on the old one. Really? I, That's interesting. Yeah. I, I never watched the old one because when you grow up in Germany, and I have the feeling Sandy will have the same experience growing up in Austria, there is no Doctor Who. People don't get that type of humor and people don't watch that usually. So I learned about Doctor Who when we moved to New Zealand, actually. Yeah. Very like... true. So, Mark, what's your thing of the day? Come on. Let's... My thing of the day? Oh, my, I got so many, it's easy. Um, today, <laughs> Nelson Mandela was elected, 1994. It's his 17th anniversary. Mm. Um, it's a 
was the maiden voyage of the Airbus A380, which is one of my favorite planes to fly on, primarily because they have power. Oh, geez. And if you really want to get probably more on my attack of things, um, the uh, 1956 uh, Rocky Marciano retires undefeated. Uh, he's a, he was a heavyweight boxer of his time. Um, and it was the 55th anniversary of that. So there's okay. plenty of good stuff that happened today. Yeah, fair there's enough. Plenty of good stuff. Cool. How is your Spiral Knights addiction going? <laughs> it's going very well, um, as well, you know, because I've addicted you and your wife. Yes, and we got <laughs> Campbell in there as well, and I'm working on Ross. Um, so, yeah, to those, to those people on, um, on the call, I don't know if you've, you've listened to us talk, Spiral Knights is this online freemium MMO that I started playing a little while ago and are now completely addicted to. Uh, I've managed to include um, Kai, his wife, uh, several other Adobe developers, um, a couple of my cousins, some good friends. <laughs> <laughs> to start playing we've started a, a Kai and I started a, a guild called the Order of N which is a nice little fun play on uh, algorithm design and, and math jokes which is exactly how nerdy we are um, so if anyone decides they also want to check it out and play with along with us we'd be love, lovely to have you on board yeah just befriend either of us and then we can you know hook you up with a session we do or invite you to the guild or whatever we want basically <laughs> Yep, so lots of fun. If anyone's looking for me on, on Spiral Nights, it's Neurotic. So yeah, and I'm Agent, Agent K as my Twitter handle. Yep, same as that. So that's really important things that we should definitely be talking about. So should we get should we get into the meat of this podcast, shall we, Kyle? Yes, we should maybe. About this shenanigans. So um, I introduced you guys quickly. Maybe um, we just do a quick round of self-intros and you say a few more things about yourself. And then we get into the topic and talk a bit about Agile and TDD and why we got you here. Should we go in the uh, order of the Skype, Skype chat? The order of the Skype chat? How, what, what order would that be? <laughs> you, don't have, you don't have an order on your Skype chat? Oh, you're using that weird Mac client thing, aren't you? Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> so maybe you define the order, Mark, and then... Uh, all right. Let me write this down. Okay. Go in that order. Cool. Because that's the order I've got it in. So I'm first, right? Yeah. You're first. Yes. Yep. Oh, yep. Hi, I'm Bill Shelton, uh, also known as Billy. And I actually work for the United States Treasury Department. So that's my full-time gig. And I, uh, you know, help start MX Unit. Cool. That's it. Mark, you with us? Hi. I'm, uh, I'm Mark Escher. I uh, joined Bill. Bill's founded MX Unit several years back, and I, uh, I joined him in this uh, mission. And um, I work for Booz Allen Hamilton with some other, uh, some other CF developers that some of you might know. Joe Reinhardt, Scott Strohs, Brian Kotek, Nick Tunney. A uh, fantastic team of guys, and we are, I guess you would say, we be agile. Um, and I also work on CF MongoDB, which Bill also started. Okay, Mike, you're next. All right, so uh, Mike Labriola, Digital Primates. Uh, to be fair, I didn't really start FlexUnit. FlexUnit was a project started by, oh, then Iteration 2, who eventually became Adobe Consulting Europe. So Alistair McLeod, Stephen Webster, um, in the old days. And it was left to kind of stagnate. So a few years back, 
I decided that we needed to modernize it and uh, try and make it prominent again in the Adobe community. So I stole the name and nothing else in order from scratch. <laughs> and Cindy. Hi. Um, I'm an independent agile coach. I moved to New Zealand four years ago. And by the time I was doing a lot of Agile, I was completely infected by Agile. And um, when I got here, not many people were doing Agile. So um, the only option I had is, was to become a coach and um, start the thing up with uh, other people. And you've also had some experience and exposure to Flex and the Adobe technology stack recently, right? Yes, not very much, but um, I ran into a bunch of really cool people at WebDU and um, have done my first uh, Flex project very recently. So, yeah. Cool. That sounds really interesting. So, um, I mean, we've got a pretty open agenda, really, for this session. The, the main driver why we came up with that special topic podcast was really that we thought there is particularly when it comes to cold fusion, which is the area where Mark and I hang out quite a lot, there's not really enough awareness of agile and test-driven development from my point of view. Just not, not enough people are doing it, really. And then we have, you know, I had the hope that delivering a special show on that topic maybe raises awareness and that, you know, we can actually maybe really... Uh, get a few more people interested in unit testing, test-driven development, agile as a general concept, and you know, advanced concepts of agile as well. So basically, yeah, I mean, maybe we start with a volunteer who tries to describe what agile really is or what agile <laughs> is trying to do. Anyone wants to give it, give it a go? I feel kind of really obliged. <laughs> that's, that's totally fine. Just you know, just go ahead. Yes, because I should be capable of doing this quite easily. But it's a question everyone dreads because um, everyone knows kind of what it is. But um, I think the basic thing is if you have 10 people in a room and uh, you ask them to define what, what Agile is, you'll get 11 definition, definitions. And it all goes back to uh, the four principles of Agile. And, um, and um, you guys all know them, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry. The um the ones are individuals and interactions over processes and tools, working software over comprehensive documentation, customer collaboration over contract negotiation, and responding to change or following a plan. And while we value the items on the right, we value the items on the left some more. And those are the basic principles. And uh, while they are absolutely necessary to be agile and to do agile, you can still adhere to those values and deliver nothing. So to me, that's a bit <laughs> Oh, so it's useless is basically what you're saying. Is that, okay. is that kind of... <laughs> it can be. You can be... <laughs> you can be agile, but, you know, still fail. That's what you're saying, basically. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I think there's a bit more to it. So uh, this is why we have frameworks like uh, Scrum or XP or Kanban or Crystal. And if I should sum it up in uh, like four points, five points, then um, I'd say the main thing is deliver something of value every two weeks or however your time box is. And it's uh, breaking big problems into small problems, do important stuff first, 
make sure what you built works and um, then go and look for feedback and um, change course if it's necessary. Okay, that makes a lot of sense actually. And I mean, at, at which on which level is TDD really playing a part in this in this set of values and set of things you should do? To me, Can it's feedback. Oh, sorry, sorry. Right. Oh, sure. you go. No, Sandy, <laughs> go ahead. I was just quickly going to say, to me, it's the feedback loop. You get very quick feedback, mm-hmm. and you can uh, change course if necessary. I let you speak now. <laughs> okay, I, I wanted to. Uh, it's a it's a good question. I would I would uh, would put Sandy's word. Uh, one of the words she started with was value, and you hear the word value a lot when talking about agile. And uh, and as she said, you know, there are ten people in a room, eleven different definitions. And so, like to define value, and I think she's got right to the point with the idea of something working in production that satisfies some. Uh, call it a, some stakeholder or even just some requirement. Um, and then, so, like, if that's the goal of Agile, and then you've got sort of, like, principles that support that goal, things like frequent deployments, receptive to change, etc., quickly identifying problems, I would put testing, and I, and I want to uh, separate testing from TDD because they are separate things. I would put testing more into the, um, like, the the practices you do as a result of following those principles. And I think that testing in particular supports that principle of identifying problems quickly from the developer side of things. So like that, that same principle, you could take that from a project management perspective and that's where you get things like Scrum. So daily stand-up meetings or effective use of an issue tracker uh, when you see issues languishing forever. Uh, that's just the PM way of identifying problems quickly. Unit testing, or I guess having tests that run all the time, is a developer's way of identifying problems, at least in terms of regression bugs, etc. Could we could we maybe do one step back and define the difference between testing and TDD? Because not everyone who's listening to the podcast might know about those yeah, sure. terms, so, actually. So I would describe testing as simply code that exercises other code, regardless of whether it's written while you're writing the production code or whether you write it afterwards or even beforehand. So TDD, test-driven development, I I think, or or test-first development, is simply writing those automated tests while you're writing the code that it's going to test. I, uh, I want to jump in and throw a little bit more at that, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so testing is, is, is a good concept in general, right? Because whether we write code to do it or whether we decide to throw a whole bunch of humans at it, the general point is, is that we generally, well, we hopefully, want to deliver functional code because that's part of what gets us to value. So we need to do that one way or the other. So testing, or at least automated testing, which is really kind of what this gets to, is the idea that machines are better at doing automatic things than humans are. And we should let those machines do those automatic things rather than have somebody who's going to get tired and stressed and out of time click a button over and over again to make sure it still works the same way. But test-driven development is, while it is true that there's a sequential operation in the sense that test-driven development prescribes that tests are written, we'll call it somewhere while-ish, like before or while the code is being written, there's a a whole philosophy behind it in itself, which is saying that when one does test-driven development, they actually use the test to define the interface. We use the test to define what the code should do. 
So more so than even just the sequential operation and where we write it, the tests become a significant portion of that documentation and a significant portion of defining what the whole code, uh, the code infrastructure that we're going to write is. Does that make a bit of sense? I think it. Yes. I think it does. Yes. I got I have a quick question though. Now, whenever I've looked at TDD, the the definition always was you should write your tests first. Apparently, I missed the memo that went out that apparently you can write it during. Is that is that right? <laughs> right. I've heard that never oh. from. <laughs> apparently, I wasn't on the list. Um, it didn't come across my desk, and now I'm feeling a little left out. So, <laughs> well, look, all right. So you, you can't really write tests completely first in the sense that. Um, we're not multitaskers in, in the true sense of the world, or at least we're not multi-threaded, right? You aren't going to write all the code at once. We're going to write a piece of code and then another piece of code and another piece of code. So if you were to sit down and write all the tests, odds are that you're not even going to necessarily know how every piece is going to work to write the tests. So it's much more, of, at least for me, and maybe someone can disagree with me, and that's fine, I'll, I'll argue it, but um, is that I probably write a test for some of the code I'm about to write, and then I'm going to write tests for some of the code I'm about to write next, and so on and so forth. So it's a back and forth process, because otherwise one would have to be, actually it's kind of funny, I'll relate it back to Agile. It's as ridiculous as thinking that one could sit down and actually define completely what the project does at the starting point. If you really thought you could just write all the tests, it would mean you have complete knowledge of the system at start, um, versus the idea that we're going to evolve things iteratively as we move through it. That's a really how I work, too. Uh, yep. This ba back and forth between test and production code. Uh, uh, I wanted to get back to this point about the uh, tests helping drive the interface. And I think this is one of those things that um, it's, it's – when I first started writing tests, it was really hard for me to grok it. Like give me an example of what you're talking about. And so I think a, a, as a quick example of this, one of the things that writing the test does – or it seems to, to achieve almost uh, automatically is that if you're writing your tests while you're writing the production code, in general, it seems in my experience, that the production code ends up being easier to use in the system where it lives, in part because you, you need to contend right away with, I guess, dependencies. And so if something is hard to test, it's probably going to be hard to use in your production code. And so your tests then, by virtue of just trying to make them easier to test, end up generally being less coupled code and, and uh, more enjoyable to use in the system in which it's going to live. That's actually a really cool point as well. Um, there tends to be a high overlap between testable code and well-architected code, at least in my opinion. I think that's definitely along the lines of what you're saying there as well. Um, testing is fundamentally about, at least unit testing, is fundamentally about isolating dependencies, meaning that we have to test one piece without all of the other pieces in the system at once. And by necessity of being able to write those tests, you have to be able to write code that is isolatable, that we can take apart. Um, which is really one of the more interesting arguments, by the way, for test-driven development, is simply that if you really want to have testable code when it's done, it is entirely possible to write code that can't be unit tested. You can couple things together, you can make sure it can never be tested. But if you're writing the test before each module of code, there's really no way that you could write the tests and then the code and end up with untestable code. That is a really fair point, um, and I would totally agree to that. Um, my experience being a consultant, you know, you go out there to clients, and I'm trying to sell the, the concept of why it's useful to, you know, at least do formal testing in a way of writing automated tests. 
I'm not even, you know, going down the road route of test-driven development. I would be happy, to be honest, really, if a lot of people, a lot more people, would write automated tests in the first place. I don't really care if they write them, you know, right when they do the the coding before the coding, or if they write them afterwards, whatever. Um, but a lot of people struggle to see the value of testing because the the common argument is obviously it takes so much time to write a test. Why do we want to do that? We could, you know, just like get one of our junior developers or get a student in who tests the website afterwards. So what's oh. a good response? Oh, what's oh. a good response to that? Actually, I think we all want to jump in. <laughs> totally. So you Let's know, around. I'll, I'll jump in. I'll jump in first, and I think there was a couple of people behind me. Um, the argument I'd actually place on that is actually I think it's actually faster to develop um, in a test-driven manner before um, trying to do it by hand for several reasons. One of which, again, is is we were talking about it very quickly is automation. It's so much easier to hit refresh on a unit test or hit play on, say, a Selenium test or any any other sort of testing framework, and just go, let's see if this works. Then to go to your website, enter a couple of fields into a form, hit submit, and continue on your merry way. It 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 takes less time doing that. Um, it also means that you spend less time actually fixing issues. If your test is written properly, you'll simply go, okay, is my unit test running? Yes, it's running. This is great. So by the time you actually go back to go into your website, maybe you're building a functional test, maybe you're doing it by hand. I hope you're doing like a functional test. But by the time you go over to that side, you know that your underlying code works the way it should work which means when it comes to building, say, your UI or something like that, you're not spending another 15 minutes going, oh, sod, I had to, I have to go back and, and go, okay, let's go fix the underlying code because yeah, I've because discovered yet another bug. breaks or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So there's less context switching as well. You know, you don't have to jump your mindset from, say, UI back to your backend and backend back to UI as you're finding, you're finding issues. So I think you actually, yeah, it speeds things up drastically to be actually testing uh, by, by some sort of testing methodology. Would you guys agree with that? Um, I think, Sandy, you were, you were next. Yes, I totally agree with every single word you said. And, uh, to me, I use basically four points to convince people. One is that um, you can have the short-term view where um, you write a bit less code, testing code, you, know, you might finish early and it might get you over the line to version 1.0. But if you look at the cost for a, lo- um, for a longer term, then uh, it's actually your maintenance, it's your bike fixing and so on, which makes it a lot cheaper if you do test-driven development or at least do uh, automated regression testing. The other thing is you get a lot of feedback really, really fast, which is very agile. So um, if you find your bugs immediately, then um, you get feedback and I can fix it because I might remember what I did exactly uh, two hours ago or um, half a day ago. It's very hard to find that if a student at the end of a project looks and tests because then it might be three months, four months. And uh, I don't remember and I can't isolate the code that actually breaks. I I also think it's... um, if you do Agile, then um, there's a lot more change within a project. So um, I find that we need to test, regression test more and more because we're changing so much. And um, if that happens, the more functionality I have, the more time I need to spend regression testing. And I find you end up doing more testing than coding. So it really, really slows you down if you don't, don't automate. And finally, for me, it's, um, it's a safety net. I dare to do changes to code if I have a full, a fully automated regression test suite, and I dare to, to be brave and actually improve the system 
what I know that I don't unintendedly break things that I don't know about. I think there is. I think Mike, would, did you would you have something you wanted to say, or was it Bill? Yeah, I didn't quite I'm gonna, yeah. yeah. There's one thing I'd like to add is you know when you have automated tests, I mean you have this ability to repeat exactly what you intended to test. When you have humans test, which is a lot more expensive, which I agree with Michael totally. Let a machine do it. You have repeatability, and so you have you know the combination of the speed. So you get this feedback, this very instant feedback, which I think automatically, or not automatically, but greatly reduces your release time, your release cycles. So you got repeatability and speed, I think, yeah. yeah. Me, uh, add on to both of those points, actually, just the way I often explain it to people, is that let's say on you know, one week into a project, it, I can take a junior developer and I can have him test the whole system. That's great. He can click through everything and he can click and he can test everything. But the reality is, is that when I make a change, it's entirely possible that I broke something else, you know, somewhere in the system outside of the little chunk of code I'm working on. Which means that one week later, when it's time to test the system, technically, I should retest everything I already tested and then test the new features. And the same thing should happen the week and the week and as we keep going forward. So we have a couple problems in that your one dev, if that's who you have that starts with it, you might need 10 by the end of a project in order to thoroughly retest things. And since that never happens, what really ends up happening in a project is that we do less testing proportionate to the size of the code base as the project goes on. The feedback loop is something else that was mentioned, but I like to frame it in another way, which is that when we're working on a specific piece of code, a developer never has more context. They never have more understanding of that piece of code than when they're writing it. Now, let's say I get it and it all works and it's fine, and then I go away and a week later somebody does a click-through test and discovers a bug in that code. How much longer does it take me to go back to that piece of code and figure out where I was, understand the context of how that thing worked again? All that time that I spent doing that was things that I wouldn't have had to do if it told me right at that moment that there was a failure, when I still had that context, when I still had that understanding. But I think the most fun part is that it's idiotic from a developer's perspective to not automate this. I work with developers every day, and the stupid crap I see people automate is amazing to me. I will see people avoid going into a SQL table and updating three rows and instead writing a procedure or a query to go do it. But when it comes to something that we do most of, testing the system over and over again, for some reason, that's the bloody thing we choose not to automate. It just makes no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> that, that is actually true. Yeah, that's a that's very, true. very well said point. You know, we automate so many things. Why not testing? Quite interesting. Well, I, oh, I yeah. think one reason for that, in my experience, has been this idea that uh, if you're writing code to test code, that the tests take as long to write as the code. And so it's almost like there's this one-to-one -one correlation of keystrokes. And so if it took a week to write this, the system under test, then it's going to take a week to write the test to test the system under test, which is clearly not true. And, uh, and yet, yet it, it would seem to make sense that it would be true because you're still typing, right? But that's, that's not the case. But I can see why particularly managers would say, oh, we've got 10,000 lines of test code. I bet that took as long or longer to write than 10,000 lines of production code. So the, uh, if you're an outsider, or just not even, not even an outsider, but if you're someone who has done programming and you hear you're going to be writing more code, in your head, you see writing code as this thing that takes a certain fixed amount of time sometimes. I think it's one reason why people don't do it. Mm -hmm. um, but let, what let, I sorry, let me just quickly jump in here and play devil's advocate, right? If we all agree that 
writing automated tests is useful because you find bugs earlier, because it's some sort of a repetitive task to do that a machine could do better than a human. What does that do to the to the role of testers in a project? Nothing. Um, well, honestly, you, you, you could. I mean, you could argue that you know, in large projects, and I've seen large projects where you know, you had like teams of twenty to hundred developers and a team of ten to fifteen testers, which were doing things like we could have better done using unit testing, or which. Okay, so you know, maybe ultimately. In a best case scenario, you end up with a few less testers, but the reality is, is they're also testing different things. And I think that's one of the most important things to understand is that things like unit tests are testing individual units of code. They're making sure that this small little cog inside of a whole system works properly. Whereas an, uh, a QA person is testing that the system performs to a specification or to a standard in an appropriate way. It, here's another metaphor I like to think about sometimes. Can you imagine how in, unproductive it would be if, you know, let's say Sony were to put together a TV, and instead of testing the individual chips and the individual circuit boards, they simply assembled everything and then hit the power button. And if a picture showed up, that TV was good. Otherwise, we threw it away and got to the next one. It, it wouldn't make any sense. And we still need all the people at the stages, right? We still want to test all these individual pieces. And at the end, someone still has to make sure that this thing meets all the requirements and that going from screen to screen in the UI and all these sorts of things work. So those roles are still needed. But when we talk about unit testing, we're really talking about the internals. And one of the most important things there, by the way, is that there's lots and lots of code which is very difficult to reach, at least reliably reach over and over again, from sort of the UI perspective where QA operators work. So when we look at how code is exercised from a high-level QA perspective, some of our code gets a lot less um, exercising, a lot less testing than you would really think, even if we do have people clicking through it all the time. So are you saying, Michael, yeah. that possibly the coverage is reduced when it's done manually through the UI? I think it's, it's about, to me, it's about assurance and specificity. Meaning that, um, uh, I explained this recently to, well, we'll explain that later, but, uh, you know, to me, doing top-level uh, testing, QA testing, is a very big and repetitive process. It's almost, to me, like saying that we, we build a car in the factory and we install the engine and we tune it up and we make sure everything starts and that the transmission's in and everything's good. And then our test is actually we read the license plate. And then we throw away all the car and we start again. To me, the right. QA stuff is, is this very big scale test. And that's fine. But I wouldn't want to build the car to check that the license plate works. I want to know that I, the license plate reads correctly before I install it on the car. And so QA is about having a full or at least a large portion of functionality before we can ever start testing. Unit testing is about testing very small portions of functionality before they're assembled into something bigger. Okay, right, unit testing to... also drives the design, too. Correct. And that's done during the development process, whereas a lot of the QA stuff is done as an afterthought and doesn't really affect the design. Or at least affects it when it's too late, right? We, we right. Keep think, right. Something doesn't work, and now it's too late to change it. But I think that's so wrong. And... Uh... <laughs> I think I think you. I completely agree when it comes to unit testing. When it comes to test-driven development, that's a um, developer development technique. It's not a testing technique. It's development. But around that, we have uh, Kai was asking about the role of a tester, and uh, I think if you imagine this, totally changes. And it's not just the person at the end who looks whether um, a program conforms to specification or not. I think if you start automating, for example, the layer around it in behavior-driven development, which is basically um, test-driven development for the intent, 
then you have a tester playing a really, really important role in uh, defining acceptance criteria and defining examples to, uh, to verify that the code actually works and uh, doing exploratory testing. So what I think is that the role of a tester totally changes and becomes way more important on an agile team than uh, on a waterfall team. And probably the tester whose background is human resources or a receptionist is pretty much not needed anymore because we can automate that person doing the check, check, check. But what we need and do have now are really, really good testers who don't write unit tests but who understand unit tests and um, who don't have to waste their time anymore looking into that layer of functionality who can uh, go to the outer layer and start automating there. Does that make sense? So is the, the yeah. tester's role is to provide more automated tests, essentially, but slightly different automated tests? Or is their job um, sort of to also be able to go, okay, I know web systems, therefore let's see how I can break this necessarily and see what they can do. Is that, or is it a com- combination think, of those two? I think both, because one would be, yeah, break stuff, exploratory testing, and the other one, yes, have a layer around the unit testing. So, yes, both. My only problem with that, Sandy, is that in a, at least in UI-driven work, it tends to be that you have to get a fair amount of code done before we can present anything to the UI whatsoever, even in a very agile process. That um, you know, UI integration layers, um, it, not always, but UI integration layers are sometimes very difficult to tie together and to actually show in a, in a viable way early. So when I say later in the process, I don't necessarily mean just at the end, but I definitely think that a developer has done a fair amount of work, which sometimes is difficult to go back and change by the time we can even present something visually that can be tested in that capacity. I think in um, what I'm trying to make sure is that even if, um, if there's a UI layer and say you really can't code in a UI component within uh, the first, well, the first weeks, that uh, to have something that can, can be demonstrated Mm-hmm. If it can be de- demonstrated either for a UI or some uh, command line, um, anything, if there's some interface, then I think test already has a role. I'll, I'll give you that. that. I'm wondering, is that maybe a specific <laughs> a specific feature of the the flex work Mike is doing most of the time, that it's maybe harder to get to a UI we can demonstrate than it is in a purely HTML web-based scenario where you can, you know, just throw together a few HTML tags and a few form tags and, you know, allow a tester to have some interface to whatever the developers have built. That could be exactly the reason why it's so hard. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say it is, but I think you're still right, Uh, which is the point that, you know, I'm thinking about it from a UI layer, but the, uh, the, the real goal is something demonstrable. So, um, demonstrable. So if, if I can show you from any way, shape, or form, as long as you have a tester who is, as you mentioned, intelligent and interactive to that degree and not somebody who is a you know, repurposed receptionist, then they should be able to test it even if it does take longer to get to a UI in a specific language. So I actually agree with your point. Let me just say that if people are receptionists and they're listening to this podcast, we don't have any problems with you whatsoever. just want to make that very clear. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. I don't want to upset anybody. <laughs> You said it was okay to offend people. What was that, Sandy? You said it was okay to offend people. Uh, normally, I'm the apologist. I think in this podcast, normally Kai's the one that's blatantly offending a large group of people at any given point in time. Yes. I, I, come but on, yeah. I'm not that bad, <laughs> really. <laughs> Mark, you uh, you had a point you wanted to bring in. 
Yeah, so you probably, or, or many of you have probably seen the uh, the large test scripts that have things written on them, like they're, they're three column and it'll have a uh, user click submit button and then a result and then the tester just goes through the script clicking and checking and f- typing in things. And, um, and it's, it's monkey work, but, but important work when it's not automated. And that is the kind of thing that you can automate, particularly with Selenium. One of the things, though, about really good testers, and this is why you can't and you don't want to automate all of this stuff away, um, is that good testers can also be kind of like guardians of the acceptance criteria. And so they may miss things or they may catch things that perhaps never even made it into your issue tracker or onto your desk as a thing to do. And so their, their, uh, Sandy, I believe, said their role is as or more important, and I heartily agree with that because they, they, become, less, um, they become less button clickers and more thoughtful and I, perhaps even more independent uh, and also more, um, take more ownership of the system. So do you see them almost as a, like a communication device between then the business and the developers? Is that, is I that think the way you're kind of- they are part of that uh, chain of communication. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, in, in the academic literature, they call those folks oracles, right? So they're the people who actually have the knowledge of how the system should work. And that can be kind of difficult to, to automate. You know what I mean? From, you know... A unit test perspective and a developer knows what a specific method is supposed to do, what it's supposed to return, and how it's supposed to affect the state of an object. You know, but when you get into a higher level, you know, it, it can be hard to define what a system should be doing, how it should appear, like visually. So, like I said, in, in the academic literature, they call that the oracle problem, which is interesting, and that's exactly what you're talking about, Mark. Well, and one other thing that a tester can bring, uh, how they can bring value is that um, you've, got a, you've got a system and it was uh, defined at some point in the past and it's going to work this way and you click this button and these things are going to be done. Uh, and the tester's in there clicking and typing about all day long. One of the things they're going to see, which your automation software cannot detect, is does this yes it might satisfy a requirement but does it is it nice to use is it is it workable uh is it, maybe we could do something better and so what testers can bring is they can they can bring additional value by suggesting ways in which the software can improve um i don't mean to say that they should be on the lookout for more business uh opportunities you know hey we can sell this suggestion for another 10k that's not what I'm talking about. But if Agile is about bringing value to the customer, then testers are clearly, at least in this capacity, a part of that value drive. That sounds so. It's, um, Go on, it's interesting too, just to kind of throw out there for a moment is that you know when we talk about automating, and obviously I'm a big fan of automating testing. We're we're talking about certain parts of testing, and I guess that should have been clear from the beginning. There's no way you're going to ever, nor should you ever, try to automate everything. The key is to automate what can be automated because the biggest waste on a project in my mind is having people do tests which could have been automated. Fair enough. Absolutely. Yeah. So, now, I got a question. Can I just throw this out if it's okay? Sure. I'm, right. I'm kind of curious what, 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 what folks test. I mean, why do you test and what specifically are you testing? Are you testing functionality? Are you trying to identify bugs or are you trying to increase um, your release cycle? I'm just curious. For I don't know. For me personally, 
I mean, I'm, you know, I work with a variety of clients in a variety of technologies and some of them use unit testing or, you know, automated testing. Some don't basically. And I try to, you know, introduce it or try to convince them that it's a good idea. And what I find, what I, when I write code for myself, I write unit tests because mainly because it gives me that safety net, what Sandy mentioned earlier, to be honest, um, that I know I can at least have that I have a repeatable set of tests for my own code base, at least for the stuff I wrote that I know I can run again at any time I like to make sure that I didn't break anything obvious, what I've written in the last few days, weeks, months, whatever, basically. Um, that's my personal main motivation, really. I think I'll, I'll, I'll continue on from there. I think, um, Chris, uh, let me try that again. It's too early in the morning. When Kai was talking about the safety net, I think I, I don't tend to look at it as a safety net. I tend to look at it as, as almost creative freedom when writing software. Because I know if I've got the tests that I've got written, and normally I have a, a combination of, say, unit tests and normally Selenium tests for doing the functional side of things as well. Because I'm, I'm primarily a Fusion developer does HTML work. Um, it gives me the freedom to be able to say, okay, I don't like the way this section was written because I think you know we need to improve on it, maybe for performance reasons, maybe to allow for some extra functionality. Um, you know, maybe we, we actually have some time to do some refactoring. Oh my god! Um, and <laughs> and so it gives me it gives me creative freedom because I can say, okay, let's let's come at it this way. Let's see what happens um, and let's see what breaks, and that's fine because I know that if I've got enough coverage across what what works and what should should be the way it should be. Um, I know that I can go back and go, okay, fair enough. This is this has been a good approach for you know this particular part of code, but I've got three things I now need to fix. But if I fix those, then everything's okay. Which, um, so which I'm is, able to. Which is actually to, a safety net. You just call it differently. Yeah, I, I think of it, I, but I th I find it's like um, I find it's a slightly different mindset because it's not that this is going to catch me in case I do something wrong. This allows me to implement the changes I want to make and, and really just kind of expand the options that are available to me. So I, I look at it more, more that way. That's, that's just a, a small different, different thing. I, I, guess, like I use the word safety net. Or to me, it's very much a safety net because I sometimes have to do project manager stuff. In, uh, then I get an Excel sheet and uh, I've changed things and I'm really good at breaking Excel. And what freaks me out is uh, that I can't do any test-driven development there. There is no set of unit tests. So I keep breaking it all the time, and I don't dare to touch it. So to me, it's really, really freaky having a system or just an Excel sheet with a no unit tests, um, which is why I, I see it as a safety net. It feels like there's nothing to save me if I break anything. May I just ask how you manage to break an Excel sheet? I can, <laughs> I can look at Excel and break it, believe me. <laughs> okay. So uh, I, uh, I like to say that I test everything that could possibly break. That's that a shortened point. Quite good wrap up here. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Test okay, so, funny. There are, there are yes. parts of, of my system or the system that I work on that are not as well tested in others. And uh, those are the parts. It's not that we fear to tread. It's that you know when you go into something with, uh, with that safety net, you're more encouraged to deal, I guess, with technical debt or just, you know, bad old code. 
uh, and without knowing that you don't have a base of tests behind you, perhaps you're less willing to get in there and do it. That's yeah. Why refactor something yeah, if it could possibly never touch legacy? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a good point. I think with legacy code, people are very, very hesitant to get into it. You know, but with code with a bunch of tests that you have that you can run in a short period of time, you know, I think it gives you confidence that you can go in and mess things up and or not mess things up, really. Because you just <laughs> because you just mentioned legacy code. So what is and that's probably a question for um, Mark and Billy mostly. What's a good approach in testing? legacy CF code. I mean, I think from Confusion developer's point of view, um, using MXUnit is fairly straightforward if you write, you know, an object-oriented system with a lot of CFCs and your business logic is nicely encapsulated. But what do you do with, you know, those old, nasty legacy systems which consists of pages where the page contains a whole bunch of query logic and business logic at the top and then runs into if-else conditions to display various views on the same page. And, you know, we all know those systems, basically. So how can so we, how can we test a, those? I want to throw out a plug for uh, CF Objective this year. It's coming up in a couple of weeks. And Emily Christensen is delivering a presentation on how to effectively test legacy code. And so the all things right. I would yep. like to talk about are ripped largely from her presentation. The first thing, the, the um, that problem you just mentioned with 20 queries in a single code file. So there's a query and then a little bit of stuff underneath that you call business logic and then more queries. The easiest way to deal with that is copy and paste those queries into a .cfm file and call it like lib my queries. So this is, you know, poor man's CFC. Um, get them out of that file into a thing that you can do a CF include on. And once those things are CF includable, you can test them. You don't need to put them in a CFC, although why wouldn't you at this point? But if you were afraid to, or your boss says, we don't want those stinking CFCs, even though they've been in CF for, for 10 years or whatever, um, if you can get them into, a, into an include file, you can test them because you can simply CF include those things as functions. You can CF include them into your unit tests and test them just like you would a CFC. Okay. Any further opinion? What about? Oh, I have. I can talk for an hour on this. But I don't know okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Feel free. You're, you're, yeah, you're definitely yeah. saying like there is there is a valid case for using testing on legacy CF code. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, whatever I Mark said. You call it hard. Okay. I'd, I'd come at it. I, I'm going to jump in here because um. Uh, pretty much the main project I work on is, is is was originally a legacy system that we're slowly trying to migrate as as much as possible. But obviously there are areas that there's just either no business reason or or, or yeah, I wouldn't say technical reason, but mostly business reason to touch. Um, we've come at it pretty much from I think the easiest way I found to test legacy code is generally through Selenium. Um, I would say Selenium's primarily purpose primary primary purpose is really as a UI test tool. Um, you shouldn't really be using it to be testing business rules, but in the case of legacy systems, you know, kind of use the tools that you've got to try and get as much as you can out of it. Um, and so you can therefore implement some automated testing because you can automate the, the UI interaction process um, and test some business rules within your application using Selenium. And the, and the good thing about that is you don't actually have to affect any code change. So if you're particularly time poor, for example, this can be a good tool for doing that sort of thing, which then means you can then go back and, you know, as you refactor stuff, 
you can you can add in things like unit tests and things like that, which is great as well. But I found that a really useful tool, being able to to test legacy systems. Because at the end of the day, you've always got a UI to to play with. Well, that's not necessarily true. In a web application, you generally have a UI to play with. Um, so you, uh, right. you you have some ways of, of being able to do that, and you can kind of fudge certain things as well if necessary. So well, it's interesting too. Tool. If you start with that approach of uh, starting with the front end, as you get into refactoring into more back end unit tests. Uh, you now have two safety nets. You've yeah. got a safety net to test your refactorings that you're going to do in order to provide uh, automated unit tests for. So it, it's interesting as well, uh, Mark. You're mentioning you know doing something from the UI, and it's interesting because a lot of that is symptomatic of the way code's written, right? Because effectively, to unit test something well, you need to be able to, as we started off saying, sort of separate dependencies and be able to break it apart at the seams. And if you can't do that, the only thing you can do is test it in mass, which means testing it from the UI level. Yeah. Um, and that's also why, you know, you mentioned it from a cold fusion perspective, but take Flex, for example. The reason so many people struggle with testing Flex is because if you were to follow any example ever provided by the major corporation responsible for Flex, you would never, ever be able to write a test against it. Um, everything yeah. in Flex, the framework itself, is wholly untestable from a unit level. Um, you have to basically ignore all the advice and take a step back um, and start on your own if you want to be able to unit test that. So, Michael, having said that, what are some good resources for people if they want to if they want to look at how they can unit test better in Flex? Just to go down to a more granular level, there. You know, actually, it's 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 to not even worry about unit testing in Flex because it's it's about understanding what testing is. Number one. Um, and then number two, about understanding how to do object-oriented design in such a way that you don't create massive dependencies. And so the same thing can happen in Flex as anything else. Actually, one of the best resources, though, um, if you're keen on it, is to read the Google testing blog. Um, I really like it. The Google testing blog talks a lot about Google's procedures and how they go about testing and how they separate objects and approaches to do things. And it's actually quite a fascinating resource to read. Yeah, I like their motto. Debugging sucks, testing rocks. Yep. <laughs> that sounds quite good. And Michael, you also have a book recommendation, don't you? Uh, well, earlier when we were talking about legacy code, um, yeah. working effectively with legacy code, which is uh, Michael Feather's uh, book, is actually a great way to talk about how you can take an existing system and start finding what they refer to as seams, which are places that you can even unconventionally sort of break it apart um, in order to be able to um, start finding ways to work with that code and potentially refactor it. So I actually think it's a quite a good book. Um, for that regard. Okay. Can I maybe quickly um, try to to move back into a more general agile discussion and away from the TDD stuff? When you when you look at, you know, and that's probably a question for Sandy a bit, when you look at approaching a new client or work, starting to work with a new client, um, what's your experience in how well established testing and agile processes are there already when you when you you know start a project? Is it that people are interested in agile or doing some testing? Do you find yourself starting from scratch most of the time? Is there any specific experience you had with I don't know you know like people come from certain communities like you know flash people versus web developers things like that? <laughs> yes, um, I'd say one of the main distinctions I make is. Uh, big company and small company. 
you talk, uh, if you go to, if I go to a big company, normally there are testing processes in place, and uh, normally they're quite old-fashioned, meaning all testing is being done at the end. It's uh, being done by testers who check off requirements. Whereas small companies, you very often have no testers at all, and it's developers doing the, all the testing. And um, so, in in both cases, the starting point might be different, but um, I still. I hope to introduce uh, test automation, test-driven development, and so on. The, uh, the types of um, resistance in both cases are different. Big company, I very often get people who are scared of losing their jobs. I get people who uh, fear, fear change because, uh, as one tester once put it to me, yesterday I was really good at my job. Today I don't know what my job is. And whereas in a small company, um, I get the, oh, we don't need it, we're fine. Um, yeah, what's the point? And in both cases, what I try to do, I'm, I'm quite mean, is to create pain. And, <laughs> or actually, I don't create the pain. I make the pain visible. So once we start programming, uh, once we start ha- having small iterations, once we start, um, well, coding user stories, for example, and uh, someone was mentioning it before. All of a sudden, you have to uh, you have to regression test, and then you make a big change, and you have to regression test it all again. So the third day, I tell people, "Well, yep, we're going to do a full regression test again." People get really, really bored and realize that, uh, okay, maybe we could automate this. So um, even if there are no um, development practices yet, I very often start start out with uh, there's pain. We're spending lots of time regression testing again and again. So um, let's automate, uh, maybe start with GUI testing. And uh, from there, sorry. No, you're going. Uh, uh, just, I actually just wanted to jump in very, very quickly because we, sure. we've talked a lot about testing and this is directed at you particularly, Sandy, because uh, we'll, we'll take you as our agile, agile guru, so to speak. Um, you talked a little bit about, say, user stories and things like that. Can you take us through um, what's a usual sort of agile process in terms of like an iterations and things like that? Because we haven't really explained that very well. So if people aren't aware of exactly the process that agile normally takes going through that, that very short iterative process, can you just take us through that really quick and how that, that all goes together? Sure. Um, basically, uh, I mentioned very much at the beginning um, the principle of deliver something of value every two weeks. And uh, so you choose your, your time box, something that's shorter than six weeks. So most people run two weeks now. And you say deliver something of value every two weeks. And um, we, we try to um, chunk up our work to split up our problems into smaller problems, saying that uh, instead of building this huge system and having everything uh, in our minds, we, um, we decide to have a small piece of functionality that provides some value to someone. And that's what we call a user story. And uh, it's coded end-to-end, and it's not just a database layer or just a GUI layer. It's some piece that uh, someone could use in theory. And uh, at the very minimum, we can show it to someone and learn. And um, we have a number of those user stories in each time box. And um, at the uh, end of each time box, we could theoretically go live, meaning we have a whatever we have done, we have coded of high quality. We don't have any known defects. And um, as soon as we have enough functionality, we could actually release it to the wild. Thank you very much. I think that explains that very well. Now, uh, the fun question I, I, um, I've always wondered about when, when looking at Agile, it seems to work very well, particularly at companies. Um, what, what happens if, you know, say, okay, for example, I'm a contractor um, 
and or, or someone like maybe Kai who, who probably has I think a few few uh, more smaller projects or like greenfield projects when you have a customer that comes to you and says okay I want a fixed bid on this I want to know you know how long is this going to take and I want to know exactly how much it's going to cost me how do you then turn around and sell them agile process which sounds a little bit more freeform in terms of how that all works um, and I completely understand those clients um, I I too want to know what do I get, how much do I, does it cost and um, as long as we keep it high level and we say yes, you get something that is very useful and uh, something that um, we can agree on the main points of functionality, it's fine. It's only if we want to lock down all the details that we get, we run into trouble and uh, the problem I have with fixed, term, uh, fixed time, fixed price contacts is um, you're cheating the client because say say or they lose because um say you say, uh, tell them it costs 25 grand and um either we um we overestimate in which case um the client pays too much or we underestimate in which ca- case people very often start cutting corners because they don't want to lose money so the client very often either pays too much or gets low quality because it's quite impossible to estimate correctly and um, I try to just educate the clients. I just try to uh, tell them so- software development is actually not a predictive process. It's uh, empiric. We need to learn around the, uh, along the way. We don't want to uh, ban innovation from uh, a development phase. We want to be able to innovate as we go. We want to be able to react to feedback. And um, I paint quite a bleak picture of the alternative of fixed scope, fixed price, and uh, then have them make a choice. Fair enough. Does anyone else have anything they want to add to that? No? No, nothing? Got nothing. She's I think that is well said. <laughs> <laughs> Don't all jump in at once. Michael, I think I heard your voice first. Oh, I, I just said I think it was well said. I think that's a, a real viable answer. Thanks. That sounds good. When it comes, Hi. when it comes to um, the whole agile process that we were talking about, um, what other tools are there to make everyone's life easier? I mean, obviously, there there is more to agile than just test-driven development and automated testing, right? I mean, Sandy mentioned already um, BDD, which is behavior-driven development. And I'm sure there are other tools people use in their day-to-day work to make the whole process go smoother. And I would love to get some, you know, feedback from from you guys what that could be I and mean, how how you, you know, define, for example, coverage in testing, how you, you know, involve the business in providing value besides developers writing automated tests, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, I'd like to start by saying that um, you you should not discount low fidelity stuff like a whiteboard note cards uh, paper for writing your burn up or burn down charts on so there are things you can do without going and spending thousands of dollars for example on issue tracking software um, and and the idea of like testing being a big part of it it's just one part of it and it's it's certainly not like if I were if I were trying to convince someone of the value of Agile, I don't think I would start with testing, for example. Um, now, that said, 
one of the things that we use at work is Jira, which is a product from Atlassian Issue Tracker. And we like it a lot. We use the Greenhopper plugin, which is an agile-focused plugin, which essentially takes the place of things like story cards and um, kind of makes electronic the iteration planning process. And it's a pretty nice tool. And there are, are certainly competitors to it out there as well. Uh, but it's one that I and the other people I work with seem to like a lot. So that would basically also overcome the potential issue of having remote teams doing Agile, right? Because with a team spread over, I don't know, four locations, two people each, uh, two people at each location, it would be reasonably hard to, you know, use whiteboards and paper to manage I, that type of stuff. My team's all remote, as okay. a matter of fact. Just to the word overcome, I know what you mean, Kai. Um, I just wanted to note that um, if you're in the same room, no matter what development manage, um, methodology, you are better off than not being in the same room. It's easier to communicate. And then um, if you aren't, if you can't change that, then uh, you can have technology to actually help you make it possible. But I don't think it, uh, it means you really overcome that disadvantage. Yeah, okay, fair enough. That is that's a valid point, actually. That's another reason for us why Scrum is so important. Or maybe, maybe let me not use the word Scrum, maybe just use the word uh, daily stand-up. The idea that every, uh, every day at a fixed time we talk for a couple minutes as a team on the phone. So you're doing a remote yeah. daily stand-up basically or phone or Skype yeah. or video chat or something like that? Yep. Okay. Yeah, we, we do exactly the same thing. We have a, we have a daily call. Um, we, we have a chat we also have a remote teams and um, yeah so that that's very much been very very useful and then even if it's um, just to just to touch base and know where people are at and what they're doing and, and who's doing what is is very useful I think just even generally maybe not even necessarily specific to the agile process but I think it's a it's a very useful tool and, and then there's never um, there's never any miscommunication. There's never any question about what people are doing and where people are at with things. It's it's a very open and transparent process, which I think makes life a lot easier in, in software development. What I like going from the meetings I used to attend when I uh, didn't work at this job, which were th those status meetings were 30, 40-minute kind of deals. Uh, this is time box, and it's get in, get done, and get out. Uh, yep. Identify blockers and move on. And I... As a guy who just wants to sit there and code, I appreciate that. Yeah, and I, I'd agree with that. I think you know, even even if you start breaking it down to like one week or, or you know, two week meetings, you know, the once off two week meeting or something, that the time you have to spend preparing for that and and then having to deal with any issues of miscommunication in between, um, it just means it actually ends up spending more of your time, which is just very difficult, at least in my experience, anyway. I fully agree, and I think the problem is also that uh, then it's more about standards reporting and not so much about coordination. I find stand-ups really useful because uh, someone else says they're going to do something on this particular day, and I can adapt what I'm planning to do uh, according to what they say. For example, they might need help. I need to have, be in position of a piece of information I know they're going to need. So I find that really useful from a uh, coordination perspective. When you when you say you're doing um, remote daily stand-ups or calls, and that's basically for I think who was it saying at Mark 
Mandel and someone else were saying that basically they're doing. Okay, that. sure. I think is mm-hmm. is it basically um, a call of people who actually work on the same project? I mean, I know that it is probably for Mark Mandel's in Mark Mandel's case, but yep. but you know, for the other Mark, or is it like a general team coordination call you're doing? Well, in my case, it's it's project specific. So okay. w- while our team may be six or seven people, uh, we the, the scrum master, like our, our manager, essentially, um, will have several scrums or se- uh, several meetings, but we're not all involved in each of them. Um, and and so to to uh, elaborate, if uh, let's say this current project I'm working on has four developers and one of them gets reassigned to another task. He stopped showing up to the ten o'clock meeting because the meeting isn't um, the meeting's purpose is identify current blockers, and he wouldn't really add value, nor would he get anything from those things. And if we needed him to jump in, we just ask him ahead of time that we had a question for him. So it's a it's a very fluid thing. Okay. Can I just say I love I love the names that go along with agile processes. Like you get to be a scrum master, you get to be the oracle. You know, like these are great names that mean that you just feel so much more powerful than you would normally. <laughs> 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 okay. Sorry, Kai, I interrupted you. What were you saying? No, that's fine. Um, I just wanted. To, I mean, we are basically over an hour already. Um, so before we wrap it up, I'd like to just quickly go back to um, flex unit and MX unit. And um, I'd like you guys maybe to give your products and your ideas behind those tools a little bit of a pluck, you know, like Billy and Mark from a, you know, try to sell using MX unit to call fusion developers in what, three minutes. And then Mike to do the same for flex unit for flex developers or action script coders. Go ahead, Mark. Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> no, no. After, after you. Well, I'll tell you that when I joined MX Unit, it was uh, it was at the time CFC Unit and CF Unit were available, and I I found that they were slowing me down. And part of the reason they were slowing me down was that it was very hard for me to see. Like when something failed, it was very hard for me to see why things failed. Because as an old school CF dump, CF abort, F five developer, unit testing wasn't working for me. Now I've been doing J unit development for quite a while, and that I just do sysouts or or log it, and I could see the see the stack trace or see you know set breakpoints, see the data. And with those frameworks, I couldn't. Uh, so Bill was working on this thing at the at that time, and I asked him, "Hey man, do you think you could do this for me? Add in the ability to see the data more easily." And um, and he did. And then I said, hey, how about the ability to run uh, – this is going to sound r- ridiculously like duh to most other frameworks, but the CF frameworks at the time did not have the ability to run a single test. You were always running the whole thing. And so – and Bill added that right away. And so what started to happen was it seemed that the framework that, that Bill was building – was designed, or not designed, but had a goal, not just of, hey, let's be fancy and write unit tests, but also to make testing not suck. And that was probably the thing that appealed to me the most about MX Unit and why I joined him, was let's work on something that typically isn't all that fun to do, which is write tests, and try and make it as enjoyable as possible, and also like as CF-friendly as possible. And now I think what we've got is uh, is a, a framework with an Eclipse plugin that's comparable to how you write code and how you run tests, write tests and run tests in 
in at least a JVM-based language. Yeah, and I think, too, for MXUnit, you know, we were the primary users. You know, I wanted something that I felt more comfortable with and that I could use in my day-to-day job. And, you know, I, I, and it's really, if you think about an XUnit framework, it's not all that hard to build it, you know. Um, I don't want to downplay a lot of the frameworks, but it's not an overly complex system. So, you know, I felt we could probably do it and we could probably do it well. But it was something that we built for us. We were the primary users. So we're, you know, Cold Fusion developers, and we wanted a unit test framework that worked for us. And so that's what I think really makes it good. We didn't, we weren't out there speculating a whole lot about, oh, but we think developers will like this, so let's throw it in there. And I, and when I look back on it, it really was a TDD agile project. You know, we did a lot of iterations. We didn't formalize the iterations, you know, but a lot of the tests, if not most of them, were, you know, pretty much test first. So the the framework itself is self-testing. We got, I don't know, how many, 400 tests or something like that? And, you know, they, they run in less than two minutes or something. So we get a lot of feedback, and we can go in there and tweak it and play with it and do stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, no, I think it's a great framework because, you know, we built it for, for us, really, to start with, that is. Hey, cool. Thanks a lot. I think that describes it quite well. And I'm, I'm personally a user of MXUnit, and I find it really, really easy to, you know, use, get into it, get it set up, and make it work with your projects, basically. Can I ask a Thank question? You. Sure. Yeah, just um, for a purely, well, uh, selfish reasons. If I'm on a uh, Flex 3.5 project, which unit testing framework should I use? I think Mike would be the right person to answer that. Oh, giant sigh. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what, Mike, why don't you give us an overview of FlexUnit in general and then come back to the, the, the question because I'm That's guessing it probably go yeah. out then in. <laughs> All right, so first thing, I guess, is the, the first step, is that FlexUnit is, is an XUnit-style framework with some extensions that was written specifically for doing Flex. It actually comes out of an evolution of a couple things for us here. The original FlexUnit didn't work for us. Um, there are too many things in Flex that weren't handled well, and asynchronous communication, and a bunch of other issues. So we originally wrote something here, which became a project called Fluent, and Fluent um, was sort of an alternative to Flex Unit. Then a few years back, um, I found out that Adobe was planning on integrating the old original Flex Unit, which hadn't been updated in four or five years, into Flash Builder. Um, and to say that I had a cataclysmic breakdown and nearly killed everyone in the room would be an understatement. So um, Matt Choten and his infinite wisdom, who was the product manager of Flex at the time, uh, was nice enough to involve me in the process, and instead we collaborated on, on making something that could work a little bit better, and that's how FlexUnit 4 came about. But it's the same sort of story. It comes out of a tool that we needed um, to get us to where we are. The thing is, though, um, the reason that I, I started with the side there is it's very difficult in Flex right now, unless you take extreme efforts, to actually be able to architect your code so that it can be tested effectively. So it's funny, um, I support FlexUnit as well, and the majority of the questions and the majority of the things I get are actually people saying, well, I don't understand how to use it. And it's a fair question, it's a totally fair question, but the answer is rarely anything to do with FlexUnit or unit testing. It's almost always actually an architecture question about how are we architect our code. So with a Flex 3.5 or a Flex 4 project, there are builds of FlexUnit for all versions of of Flex that are out there from 2.0 all the way to the bits that are going to be released shortly. Um, So you can get any of those from FlexUnit.org, including even 
developmental bits from our build server. Um, so all of those things are available to you. But the biggest thing is, is it's very hard to integrate it after the fact, number one. And number two, it's just a scenario where, again, um, it's, it's almost a process where, you know, I, be, used to be, I used to be part of the CF community and I'm much more part of the Flex community now, but we suffer all from the same things, which are that most of the code one encounters is just not testable. Uh, most of it is, is problematic. So what I actually usually encourage people to do is to, to get their head a little bit around Flex Unit and to try to do a process of, of starting to test with their next project or with something of that, that nature or if they have time to refactor a current one. But um, it's, it's very, I just want to be honest to anyone who's listening that it's very, very difficult to integrate Flex Unit or any of the unit testing framework into an existing Flex project. Mike, can I ask a Thank question you. about it? Yes, on both accounts. <laughs> go, go ahead, Sandy. I, I just wanted to say uh, thank you very much for that answer, and um, it will help me get off my high horse. And um, because of my my background in terms of my back, lots of my background is actually Ruby and Rails, where uh, those kind of things are very very easy. So I'll get off my high horse when I talk to my developers and um, realize, okay, maybe it's architecturally not that easy, and there, are, and it's harder for them than uh, it's in my Rails world. And um, yeah. Thanks a lot for that answer. Yeah, fair enough. So, Mike, I assume you use FlexUnit to test your AS3 code, just like you would if you were doing Java. Do you also use FlexUnit to uh, spin up an app and, and play with charts and graphs and take your mouse and click on this thing and it makes bubbles pop up on the other side of the window and all the, all the flexy bits that people love about Flex? Is that... Is that the goal? That was the best description of flex I've ever heard. <laughs> hey, man, just keeping it real. <laughs> oh. <laughs> How's that for an answer? <laughs> oh, what was your answer? No, a resounding no, perhaps. Okay. Um, flex is a testing framework, so it's intended to allow you to test units of code. Um, when we look at a UI component in flex, let's take, for example, button. Button has 2,113 dependencies. Um, I don't call that a unit. There so is. It's, what was that? Serious number? Yes, yeah, serious number. Serious number. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, as such, I can't, with a straight face, say that you could unit test button in that way. Um, so... The reality is, is that there are tools in some cases like FlexMonkey or others that are built on top of FlexUnit which allow that sort of abstraction to let you go further. But FlexUnit is primarily just about testing units with some capability of doing integration testing as well. But it is, it is a much, much smaller, um, it's intended for much smaller pieces of functionality. And, and that is actually where most people go wrong is the first thing everyone wants to do is, is test to make sure when they click the button something whizzes across the screen and appears somewhere else. And, and again, that probably in a flex application involves several thousand moving pieces. Um, and that's definitely not our goal. Thank you. Cool. Cool. Yeah, thanks a lot for the feedback and for the plugs. Um, I hope that people who do call Fusion and Flex development get at least interested by by hearing what you what you were saying about the um, the different frameworks. Is there I mean what what's in the pipeline for, for the future for Flex unit and MX unit. Is there anything, any new releases coming? Any big things planned? You you guys are working on. 
Yeah, if I if I may, Mark and I have been chatting a bit about. Um, you know, we really like the concept of data-driven testing, and we have um, an annotation that allows you to, you know, pass a data set um, to a test, so you don't actually have to iterate through arrays or any kind of data structure. Um, it's essentially a parameterized unit test, and I think this is in flex unit, Michael. Um, theories, is that correct? Yeah. So yeah, we we've been talking a lot about. Yeah. So we've been talking about implementing theories as a la J unit or, or flex unit. And theories are actually, it's fascinating. So, yeah, theories. Cool. Michael, anything for flex unit? So we actually just released 4.1 um, literally last week or so. Um, so we're going through now um, for the next iteration. And there are definitely some changes coming to the asynchronous API to make some, um, although not too much, but some asynchronous testing a little easier. And also, um, there will be some additional changes to hopefully make um, BDD-style tests and, and some of the language parsing around BDD a little bit easier inside of FlexUnit as well. So there's some changes, um, although at this point, we're relatively feature-stable. It's or relatively, uh, yeah, I, I guess you could call it feature-stable. I think the biggest thing will be continuing to try to make sure that we stay in front of Adobe and what they're releasing to ensure that Flex developers have a chance of testing it. Okay. Is um, 4.1 going to be shipped with the new Flash Builder, 4.5? It won't make 4.5. It'll make a subsequent dot release. Ah, okay. Is, okay. How do people, how, can people upgrade their Flash Builder to a new version of Flex Unit? They can. It's not actually terribly difficult in the current one if you kind of don't mind digging around in the file system for a bit because Adobe buried it just a little bit. But it's actually a feature um, in, bur in Burrito and afterwards that there's a dialog box that you can actually open to update your Flex Unit uh, libraries in the, in the newer versions. Ah, cool. That sounds good. Very Sweet. nice. So I think um, we're at nearly 1 hour 20 now, so we should probably wrap it up pretty much, as, you know, unless anyone has, to, we, has some, some pressing issue to discuss or talk about. Should we do a usual uh, if there's any events going on? Yeah, I've got actually two announcements um, from the Sydney Adobe Platform Users Group. Um, they have um, a presentation next week, Monday, 2nd of May, and the topic is Speed Matters, which is basically about website tuning, and that's delivered by Mark Stanton. And um, then they have another meeting on the 30th of May, and that's going to be a session on Flash Catalyst Flash Builder and Flex 4.5, basically all the new releases. And the presenter will be Clinton Ennis, who has apparently worked with those for quite a few months and building stuff for production. So he's going to talk about you know what's changed with the new dot releases of the Flash platform tools. Good stuff. Good stuff. So, yeah, I think it was really, really interesting. Um, I really enjoyed having a chat to you. I hope you guys found it interesting as well. I mean, you know, both Mike, Mark, Billy, and Sandy, and all the listeners as well. Um, yeah, I learned quite a few things, and um, I hope this session actually inspired a few people to give Agile and testing a go, because I think it's really a worthwhile thing to do. It makes your life as a coder and as, you know, as a developer in any size organization nicer and easier. 
Sounds good. All right, um, should, we, should we go around the room? If people want to uh, possibly get in contact with any of you guys or possibly follow you on Twitter, what what handles or, or resources do you have available? We'll, we'll go in the same order we went before. So, Bill, you want to go first? We'll, we'll just go sure. around the room. Sure. You can actually contact uh, any of the uh, MX Unit folks, uh, Mark and myself, at theguys at mxunit.org. And, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Uh, test and be happy. You got a you got a Twitter account, Bill? Yeah, yeah. Mine is uh, Vertix, V I R T I X. Wonderful, Mark. I would say if you want uh, if you want to talk MX Unit, the MX Unit Google group is a fantastic place to go. Uh, don't try and get tech support on Twitter; it's kind of irritating. Just send a note to the group, and, we, we, and a lot more people are are you know ready to respond. Um, so, if you want to talk testing, uh, continuous integration. Just unit testing in general, those sorts of things. Email the Google group. Uh, Twitter handle is Mark Escher, M-A-R-C-E-S-H-E-R. Mr. Lebriola. All right. So flexunit.org is the starting point. Uh, There's wikis. There's uh, a fair amount of information there. There's also an official Adobe forum for FlexUnit, which you can find via your favorite search engine. Um, uh, I think those are probably best places to start with um, for any FlexUnit information, things of that nature. And we actually do respond to all the emails and forum posts if they're, they're put in there. And as far as finding me on Twitter, if you really want to see the inane details of my life, feel free to follow me at mlabriola. Wonderful. And lastly, Sandy. <laughs> cool. Oh, sorry. sorry um, <laughs> the easiest is probably to uh, contact me on Twitter, which is at smamol. And thank you from there. And I'm happy to discuss anything agile-related. I was actually I was actually going to say if you follow um, if you follow Mike on Twitter you get a whole lot of rants on his travel experiences and it's so fun to read actually <laughs> I love it <laughs> wonderful 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 all right I think that's is that all we've got here today Kai um, I think so yeah that's pretty much what we wanted to go through um, you know talk about agile TDD and um, we mentioned the two events so that's pretty much it for this week. Wonderful. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for for coming and joining us today. It was great to talk to you all, and it was really good. I'll see uh, I'll see Mark and Bill. I assume in it's if objective in a couple of weeks. I won't be there, unfortunately, Mark. But uh, uh, well, have sad. a great time. <laughs> I know. I want a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> the only time I get to smoke cigar cigars is when I like see Mark Asher at a conference. You know. So, That's I'll miss enough. that. Uh, Michael right, Lebriola, are you going to be are you going to be at TIFF Objective this year, or are you skipping this? Uh, no, nor any of the other years. As a matter of fact, haven't I so, seen you at TIFF Objective? I've never made it to TIFF Objective. You you continually no. ask me that though, and I believe you've just inserted me in random places of your life. <laughs> it's just a mental. <laughs> you're just I'm just walking around talking to you, and you're not actually there. Um, maybe this maybe right now is a figment of my yeah. imagination. Yeah. <laughs> no, I see you at WebDU all the time. That's why I get it confused. Because <laughs> you come down to Australia semi-regularly. Okay. Well, if that's it, I think that's that's us done. Hi, unless you've got anything else you want to say? No, I'm all good and happy to wrap it up here. Great. Well, again, all right. Thank you. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks a lot and for guys. coming on. Thanks. Cool. Bye.